Good morning. Today's reading is um, John 8, verses 31 to 38, and then 48 to 59. The truth will set you free. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. 48 to 59. Before Abraham was, I am. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. morning. As you listen to the scripture read, you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you to enliven certain verses and images. As Jill was reading for us, um, much stood out for me in this argument. The Pharisees trying to make sense of who Jesus was who Jesus is. Are you greater than our father Abraham, verse 53, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? We're considering Jesus heading towards the cross. And I've mentioned over the few weeks of Lent that this is a a really important time in, in the lives and prayers and faith of Christians. 
it's been set out for us, not in scripture, but in practice through centuries and in various denominations in church history, to call this season the season of Lent, the season of preparation. And uh, for me, in my faith, in my prayers, I'm mindful over and over again of how I have so many things going on in my life and things I care about, things I worry about, whatever. And Jesus is just, well, we're told in Scripture that he's turned his face to Jerusalem, which means the cross, that he's set his mission. And everybody else, there's all this stuff going on around him. People are trying to make him out to be the kind of Lord or the kind of Savior that they would like him to be. And he's going to disappoint most people, all people, basically. And so I, in my prayers, enter into that and say, how is it that in my ignorance I am disappointed? And what is it that he's doing? Who do you make yourself out to be? So much of the Gospels, for those of you who read Scripture, and you should read Scripture daily if you can, well, you can, and so much of the Gospels are taken up by the last week in the life of Jesus, by what's been called his passion. One third of the Gospels taken up by this matters deeply. And we like to think often about the other two, or the, like the other two thirds, which is years. And Jesus' ministry, his teaching, fantastic, which is great. His miracles, which are great. But as he moves towards the cross, there are fewer miracles. He heals fewer and fewer people as he moves towards the cross, healing them physically. People get disillusioned with him. You don't like to be disillusioned with anybody. And we have no patience for that anymore in our culture. You make a quick assessment, am I into this or that? And if it doesn't kind of impress you in the ways that we're impressed in the world, then you quickly... Find something else. Find something where it will meet your needs better or something. And people are disillusioned with Jesus. Particularly as he speaks talking about, as he begins speaking about his death and his suffering. I'm going to Jerusalem and there I will suffer and there I will die. As he talks about his body and blood, that you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm going to die He's abandoned by the crowds that had been impressed by him. So that's what is happening as he moves towards the cross. In John chapter 8, which we're looking at today, uh, it's a little earlier on, though in John it's not long from this chapter that we get into the final week of Jesus' life. John 13 and 14 and on. In John chapter 8, here's the context of where we get to in our reading for today. The first part of the book is about the woman caught in adultery, which is, of course, one of the terribly misnamed stories in Scripture. That name doesn't come from Scripture itself. It comes from those who have kind of divided it up, so it's easier for us to read. There are no verses in the original text, right? There are no, everything is, we've put that in, and then certainly put in the titles, And the idea that there could be a story about a woman caught in adultery and not a man is very interesting. And of course, this story is about people who want to condemn her for what she's done improperly. And Jesus, you know, turns the others away and says, who's left to condemn you? So that's the beginning of the chapter. Then you have an extended section where Jesus refers to himself as 
I am the light of the world. It's one of the chapters where you get the I am's of Jesus. Here, the light of the world, but there's also I am the bread of life. And then the rest of the chapter is a long argument. A long argument with religious leaders because Jesus didn't fit the idea of what a Messiah would be, who Messiah would be, at least their idea. And he is oftentimes getting into arguments with religious leaders. Uh, You can see in this argument that it is not, as the old hymn would say, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He says to these people, you have a father and that father is the devil. It's not necessarily the thing you want to say to religious people who have power. You're Satan's children. Maybe reserve that. But that's what Jesus says. It's so heated that the argument ends with these religious leaders trying to kill him. That's how bad it is. Have you had any bad arguments in the last little bit? Did somebody try to kill you at the end? But it wasn't quite as bad as this one. They're so offended by him and so upset and so convinced that he has committed blasphemy that they pick up stones to kill him. You remember the prodigal son story from Luke 15 that we looked at over the last couple of weeks. And we asked, what's that story about? It's a disservice to Scripture and to that story to turn that story into a story about sin and repentance and forgiveness. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but again, that name is not in Scripture. It's actually more focused on the older brother than the younger. Because the occasion of the story is that the religious leaders were upset that Jesus was welcoming sinners to be with him. And so, because on on the occasion of that accusation, he told a story. So what's the point of the story? The point of the story is not, I'm not saying it's not true within the story, that we need, like, we've, we've sinned and we're open to repent. But the real repentance comes after the father welcomes the son home. But the story goes to the older brother who can't seem to accept that the father would be so loving to the younger brother. He has a way, a system of keeping things as they should be, and his father has offended him greatly. So clearly Jesus is putting the religious leaders, religious people, and others in the place of the older brother, saying, my love was always available for you, but you're offended by the grace that I offer. And in that story, it is the older brother who remains in the outer darkness. So when you hear those images of and, and those weeping and gnashing of teeth, who's weeping and gnashing their teeth? The ones who can't stand the grace of God. It makes them weep and gnash their teeth. And they stay outside. So this is the same people, same crew that Jesus is speaking to. He's never against a person, our Lord Jesus. He's never against people, but he is against systems that prevent people from seeing God and God's love. He's against this kind of group think. And so there's occasions in Scripture where he's talking to a religious leader or a Pharisee. In fact, you know from John chapter 3 that it's a Pharisee, a religious leader, when Jesus is speaking about being born again. And here, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The key consideration in this text is freedom and slavery. Always two sides of the same thing. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. He's saying that to these religious people, and how is that even offensive? 
They're offended by the fact that he would say, the son brings freedom. And they get upset by that. Why would they be upset by that? They're upset because they say, how dare you say we're not free? We're free. But he seems to think otherwise. The question we could put before us is, when you think of Christian faith, um, and I, hear, I mean here more the religious side than the faith side, when you think of church, when you think of how we have operated often in our lives and churches and families sometimes, do you think of freedom? Maybe. Some would say, of course. Others would say, oh no. That was the least free place for me. What do you think others think about when they think about Christian faith? Freedom? So they're offended that he has made some kind of accusation or they feel that he has, that they are not free, that they would need something that they don't have. And so this slavery matter comes up and he brings up in verse 34 that you can be slave to sin If the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. You think you're Abraham's offspring, but you seek to kill me. If if you truly knew freedom, you wouldn't seek to kill me. You seek to do what your father does. That's a pretty strong accusation. Abraham is our father, they say, and later they'll try to make sense of Jesus. They'll say things like, you're a Samaritan. You're obviously a Samaritan, which shows kind of how they operate, they think that certain people are terrible just because of where they're from. Can you ever imagine such a non-Christian way of thinking? Or you have a demon. Why would they accuse him of being a Samaritan or having a demon? Because you don't fit what we think is proper and right. So therefore, we'll describe you in these ways. But he's strong And he's going to turn their argument back on them and say that actually their father is the devil. He sets out that, yes, your slavery can be to sin. And if you sin, you're a slave to sin. But slavery can also be to a religious system. It can come out that way. And the truth is that Jesus Christ brings freedom. If this is true, think about this prayerfully for a moment. Jesus Christ brings freedom. Then what should that mean for you? How should you maybe feel differently than sometimes you feel in your own strength? What might it look like for you? Sometimes in the Holy Spirit when you're speaking, the Holy Spirit, I think, I mean... You can test it, whatever. I say this lovingly, but anytime we gather with a group of people like this, and many of us know one another well, so many of you are not free like you should be. Jesus Christ brings freedom. If I felt and new true freedom, how would I feel and think differently than I do? This week I read an article about a, I won't name the nation, but this made the news because they have made adultery, actually thinking about the beginning part of this chapter, 
They've made adultery and homosexual activity punishable by death. The leader of that nation lives in a house, so-called, with 1,788 rooms. And he's going to tell people what is sinful and support a system that kills them for it. The imposition of any order, anything that says, I am acceptable and you are not, shows our slavery both to sin and to systems of religion or systems of this world. And Jesus speaks of something so much better here. He speaks of freedom. You have to watch out for any totalizing system. So it's a bit... um, It's a bit philosophical to think in a sense, but any system that can explain everything. You know what I mean? And religious people are given to this kind of thing. It's something that we can struggle with. I can explain anything in my faith. I can explain why so-and-so is having a bad time in life. They've sinned. They've backslidden. That used to be the word. Turned their back on God, whatever. I can explain scientifically things. I can Any totalizing system. That could be something like Marxism, right? Which explains everything explains economics and human behavior and whatever, but certainly religious systems can do the same kind of thing. You should be skeptical of totalizing systems. And Jesus will always speak against kind of systems, things that that explain everything. He's going to ask for faith in him and, and ask for trust and offers instead of that totalizing tendency, freedom. The freedom to say, I don't understand everything. I don't even understand myself. But I trust in him. And I don't know if I'll be okay. And I don't know if I have enough money. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And everybody's tried to tell me that I'll be okay if I can answer all those questions affirmatively. That is called slavery. And in him you are free. I don't think we understand this yet. So many of us and some of you in this place, I have not battled this as much in my own upbringing. There are other things, to be sure. But so many of you have battled both the... the, There's blessing, to be sure, but you've battled the difficulty that comes with being raised in religious systems. Because religious systems, like Jesus is speaking into here, that's small, I'll read it for you. Religious systems can produce what good biblical commentator called anxious Christianity. As I look at my own Christian life and my own faith, it's not, you know, a secret that I don't necessarily hold my faith in the same ways that that some others do. I guess any of us could say that. And I'm aware now, I've been at this long enough and I'm old enough to know that to some degree what I don't believe is an anxious Christianity. I've been invited to believe it. I've been invited actually to to perpetrate it. And anxious Christianity means that you're always asking those kinds of questions. Is this okay? Is this acceptable? How should I make sense of that person? Are they good or bad? And so much Christianity that I see is anxious when our Lord says that he has set us free. What does anxious Christianity look like? 
Well, instead of understanding itself into relation, in relation with Jesus Christ, who is the victor and who has victory, instead of understanding itself in relation to Jesus Christ and his mission, that we would be of good heart, that Jesus is able and sufficient, it takes, and there might be good reason for this in the world, but it takes a tragic view of itself. How come more people aren't interested in what we're interested in? carries faith almost as a tragic thing in the world and takes a tragic view also of those it would label as opponents. Something is wrong with them. So the quote, this anxiety then translates into how we live. And this might be overstating it, but allow yourself to consider this. Maybe if you can't do this for yourself, you know, kindly think of someone else that you've known in life and if they've held faith in this kind of way. Constant questioning Worrying, complaining, accusing, constantly upset about something, constantly voicing concerns and troubles, constantly engaging either forcefully or quietly in corresponding quarrels in the world, more or less noticeably to be extending those quarrels to those around. And the key here is that we must never in any circumstances transfer an anxiety that we can feel in life and faith to our understanding of Jesus Christ as if he is anxious about the world or our sin or your situation or your circumstance. He is not. He is able and he loves you. And if you had perpetrated on you when you were a child or when you were growing up any kind of anxious view of Christianity, you need your view to be opened and to understand that you have a Lord who loves you that is not anxious about you. I have seen this. This seeps into how you relate to one another in family. Those who have kids and they grow up and become teenagers and young adults and you know, you worry in some ways when they're younger, but then, oh no, what if they make bad choices? I'm not saying these aren't natural parental worries, but when they become spiritualized as if this was what God would have me do, you know the terror that that brings. Comparing to other people. This makes its way into the church. And this is what the world is best at, anxiety. What's happening now, many studies are showing, many of them based in the United States, that people who have so-called become the most successful people, so you're thinking particularly of young people, one of the big studies of this has been done at Yale University, where they've realized now that the young people who've made it to Yale and are getting good grades or whatever are absolutely, for the most part, I mean, obviously it's not saying everybody, but in many, many ways, are absolutely riddled with anxiety. The church ought to be the place where you don't have to be anxious. Everywhere else. I'm not saying if you have mental health difficulty with anxiety. I'm not condemning that in any way, shape, or form. Please don't ever think that. I'm saying that a system that holds out anxiety as a good thing, right, The church should be the place where we say, come and meet my Lord. In Him you can know freedom. Where everything else, everywhere else, is putting these 
heavy, heavy, heavy burdens upon you. Sometimes if someone is not anxious, we treat it as if it's a problem. Right? I'm a parent of a 21 and a 19-year-old. I know I can do that. Why aren't you more upset about your lack of whatever? And then I pray, and in the Lord, I can only tell you, I have never, never had my Lord Jesus Christ say to me, Todd, you should be more anxious about them. It's all, how am I calling you to love? And that doesn't mean that love doesn't guide and direct. Of course it does. But I will not seek to compare, to enter those games. Those are worldly things. My Lord brings freedom. There's a, we partner with them, of course. Some of you have been to the events that we do, uh, the community mental health talks that we do here on post-traumatic stress or OCD or... And we've partnered with the North Shore Stress and Anxiety Clinic to do those, right? We've had trouble getting them to come lately and do one because they're just so busy. But one of the reasons that they do those talks is that they are so busy. If you are battling with anxiety today and I say to you, you should call our friends at the North Shore Stress and Anxiety Clinic. First of all, isn't it interesting that there's a place called the North Shore Stress and Anxiety Clinic? And if you called this morning, well, you wouldn't get anybody, but you called tomorrow, you wouldn't get an appointment for five or six months or something maybe? I mean... Don't be too anxious. <laughs> They're like the new pastors. They're wonderful. But the way people maybe used to think of pastors, that pastors might have something to say that could help, now the new pastors are like these, these kinds of people. They're held in high esteem. I think it's, it, it makes sense to me. They have many, many great things to offer. But we have, in North Vancouver, where most other people who are living in the world would think, like people in Pokhara or Yangri would think, if I lived in North Vancouver, I wouldn't be anxious. Well, we got a clinic. This is, this is what the world is producing. And Jesus is speaking into this. When you know me, you know freedom. And this that I have on the screen is the worst thing that we can do is take our own anxiety and put it onto our Lord Jesus Christ as if that's how we should relate to him. You must be upset at me. You must be anxious about me. You want me to be anxious. All these systems, worldly or church, they become systems of power and fear and control, and that is not how Jesus operated. Thanks be to God. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Some of you are good at that freedom, by the way. But even those of you who are good at that freedom, you get tempted, right? You think it's wrong, almost. You think, like, I feel free. I shouldn't feel this free. I should feel like I should be doing better in life or something like that, right? Can I say to you, if that's your tendency, we need you, but we need you for your freedom. We don't need you to be riddled with anxiety like everybody else. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Of course, our Scripture says... Of course, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. That just shows that you're a slave to sin. Don't use your freedom to act as if you're not free. But if you know Jesus, back to near the beginning of this chapter. Now hear these words again. I am the light of the world. And he still is. 
And we still need that light as much as we have ever needed that light. And any endeavor we take up on our own, however worthy and worthwhile, and thanks be to God, we've been given gifts and talents and interests that we can do things that make a difference in the world, that we can do things that we enjoy. But once those things become slaveries, we cease to know the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. And could I say to you, whatever it is, whatever it is that is holding you down, a personal history, a desire to kind of be something in the world, your own judgment of people in your own family, it might be that. For God's sake, be free. Be free. You don't have to live like that. It's okay that not everything is okay. And then the clincher, back to the argument. They're so upset at him because of this accusation that they need freedom. And they act... It's, it's almost too textbook, right? They act like anxious religious people act. I mean, you know it and I know it. When you're anxious, particularly if somebody else has let you down or they're a threat to your understanding of the world, what do you do? You attack them. When this happens within your own families or something like that, it's really, really difficult. I mean, I'll just give you an example on a little safe thing. When somebody's upset you that they haven't, you know, met your expectations in a small way, cleaning the house or, you know, having something the way you like it. Or you can translate that to bigger things. But when your anxiety matches up with that disappointment, what is too often to happen with a glance? In my family, I can do this with a look. It's something I have to watch. I, I didn't learn it for a while, but I realized... Just the other day, I'm afraid I did this to one of my kids, and I didn't talk to him about it after. I just looked at him. And he was smiling. And, but I don't know why I looked at him with a, a look that was maybe not great. And he just turned and walked away. And I was out riding my bike later, and, and I was repenting of my sin, and that's the sin that the Holy Spirit revealed to me. You know, when your anxiety matches with any any sense of that your own human kind of frailty or disappointment you can attack and you can attack in ways that you're not even aware of and you know as much as I do maybe more that that is weakness not strength but if the son has set you free then you're free indeed and Jesus to these people who are so like this they're so trying to make the world a better place. They have a system that they know if only people operated like they wanted them to operate, then things would be okay. And Jesus to them, as if he knows what's going to send them over the edge, right? That's the problem. And some of you, speaking about family systems again, it's always people who are closest to you who know how to send you over the edge. And Jesus knows these people. And he knows, all right. I mean, he's without sin. I accept that. He's not without argument. Argument, And so, toward the end of this section, well, it's the end because he says this. This is the end of the argument, right? They're like, how could you know Abraham? You're not even 50 yet. And he ends with, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. I don't know if there's like a mic drop or what. 
And then the very next verse says, or next portion says, so they picked up stones to kill him, to throw them at him, to stone him to death, because in their mind, he had broken a religious rule. One of the worst things you could do. He knows what he's doing, and so I hold this all together. I ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to me how am I to learn and grow from these scriptures? How would you speak to me about it's easy for me to talk about anxious Christianity because it is something that maybe some of you have battled more than I have, but then the Holy Spirit will always seek to reveal to you things that you need to work on, not what somebody else needs to work on, right? I'm a pastor, so I hope that some of the things I say can speak into your life, but by God's grace, he speaks into mine. And so two things to end with before we take communion. Two things you can take with you, you can do. Firstly, I'd like you to consider slavery and freedom in your own life. This might be if you've been a Christian not for long, or you've been a Christian for years and years. It's just like you can't imagine any other possibility. But how, has, how is slavery still operating in your life? Of course, it might be slavery to sin, good old-fashioned sin, if you've, as you've understood it. But it might be slavery to a particular understanding of God that makes you uh, unable to grow. Because you feel like somebody would be upset at you if you thought differently. Think of slavery and freedom in your own life, and then take up a prayer. I'll pray it now, simply. Dear Lord Jesus, Help me to know the freedom that I have in you. Dear Lord Jesus, help me to know the freedom that I have in you. And secondly, I'd like you to consider, I say this invitationally more than authoritatively, in an authority way? How is Jesus better than any other system or any other worldview, religious or worldly? He, he shatters them all. I know what you would describe if you were to describe someone who has made it in life. I mean, our churches, that's how we would, just, they've done this and they, then they went to this school and they got this job and they did this thing and, Right? It's, we're, we're just inundated with the culture of the world. So that's a worldly system, but there are religious systems. How is Jesus Christ better than any other system or worldview? Dear Heavenly Father, would you reveal my Lord Jesus Christ to me that I would know in spirit and truth and action my life how he, my Lord, is better than anything else that could have my allegiance. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. How is Jesus better than any other system or worldview? And then, of course, the offer is in freedom now, follow him. Follow him. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Does anything else in the world tell you that? No. 
You better, this is going to be hard. And many good things are hard and difficult. You can train for some physical thing. You can take up education, right? But Jesus Christ comes in, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've come to give you rest. Nothing else is telling us that. Of course, sometimes that's the false promise. And so we throw ourselves into all kinds of systems, worldly and religious, because they seem to have the promise of rest at the end. Right? Just go like a mad person all this way, because at the end you'll be able to put your feet up. Jesus says, if you come to me, once you come to me, I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, I would ask in this moment as we take this communion that you by your presence, power, and by the living word would speak to us. I pray for each people, each person here as they take off that piece of bread, as they take that cup, that you by your grace would speak your freedom, speak a challenge for growth and trust in you. I thank you that every area of our lives Work, family, leisure, friendships. Every area of our lives will be blessed if we know freedom in you. If we're sick, we long to be healed, but we long more for freedom in you. Come, Holy Spirit. On the night, Lord Jesus, that you were betrayed, you took that bread and you broke it. And you said, this is my body given for you. And we know that in the same way after supper, you took the cup and you said that this cup is your blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. You have taken care of those things over which we need to be anxious. I pray for those who struggle with anxiety in terms of mental health difficulty. We pray for grace. We know that this is a real problem, a real difficulty in our culture. And we pray for people in those circumstances that they would get the help they need in terms of therapy, medication, prayer. But we would pray that as a church and as people of God that we would not be marked by anxiety. That people would long to come to communities like this because they could say, well, in that place, there's freedom. So as we take this bread and we drink this cup, we declare your death. Until you come again, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.